1: I remember pulling up to this brown home that sat on this hill thinking, oh yeah, that home's big. And in reality, it wasn't huge. And I walk into it and all of a sudden there are all these kids that are all sorts of colors, shapes, sizes. And so there's two white parents who come to greet me with open arms and a myriad of very different looking kids. (laughs) all around me, black, Asian, and white. And it was pretty chaotic. All of a sudden, I had 12 other brothers and sisters. I'm Grace Foster, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities.
2: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
0: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm
2: Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
0: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
2: It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love, we're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Grace Foster. She calls herself the oldest of the youngest third in a family of 19 kids in total. She's an Asian American woman working in the nonprofit sector in Washington, D.C., and she's also currently getting her executive MBA at NYU. And how do we know Grace? (laughs) Well, Grace actually discovered us because she was listening to a bunch of podcasts, and specifically she was trying to find podcasts where she could learn more about her own Asian culture. She stumbled upon modern minorities. She loved it so much <laughs> that she reached out to us and when we met her and we we heard about her own story of being an adopted South Korean child coming to the US and just kind of hearing that her her past and her journey, we just thought she'd be a great guest to have on the show and to dig a little bit deeper into some of her experiences.
2: Yeah, it's you know, minorities being in our term and in, in the name of our show is usually about ethnic or background. And yeah, Hey, Grace checks those boxes, but her minority experience has more to do with her being adopted or her, her living in a house with so many kids that didn't look like her, her having such a unique experience growing up that I didn't have that my kids aren't having that. So many of us don't, you know, maybe you have a friend who has been adopted or we know someone, but it's really kind of shaped the journey that she's still on. I think that's the other thing, Sharon, we were talking about this. She's still figuring out what, what she really wants to do and finding her place. And she's doing great work in the nonprofit sector in DC. And I think so much of it's rooted in she's still figuring out who she is. And yeah. it's interesting to hear that journey.
0: Absolutely. I think it, it just kind of shows that we're, we're always evolving, every single one of us. And so it was really great to spend some time with Grace, to get to know her better, and to continue to follow her along on her journey.
2: Yeah, so we hope you enjoy our conversation with our friend Grace. Grace, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So Grace, I don't know if everyone knows your story, and we want to hear a lot about it soon, but can you tell us a story about your youth?
1: Well, yes, there are are many. (laughs) (laughs) Specifically, I think one of the more interesting stories and one I get asked to talk a lot about is coming to the U.S. as a, an orphan from South Korea and specifically my experience as a little orphan, having my own space and my own bed and my own toys for the first time. Uh, How old were you surreal. when you came over? My age is actually made up, but I was <laughs> approximated to be about five years old. Yeah. So and they hit it pretty well on the money there. They're maybe off a year, but it's, it's pretty close. But when I lived in the orphanage, I remember quite a few things about it. And I remember just, it was a pretty lonely time. And of course, you don't have much when you're an orphan. And I didn't have any of my own space. I had no possessions really. And so when I came to the US, the whole journey, it was pretty incredible because I I do remember the day the orphanage staff, when they told me I was going to go to the US. And it's weird because I remember all this in English. (laughs) And I guarantee you they were not speaking English to me. But they bought me this, this little dress that I still have that I was going to wear to go to my new home and these little white tights and these little shoes that I still have with me in this little bag. Really? Yeah. And that was supposed to hold whatever possessions I have. And I remember feeling really excited, even at that age. I mean, I knew what that meant because we were surrounded by all these little kids like us with no parents and no home. And The day that I came over, I flew with strangers. I don't remember age or gender or anything like that, but I remember being terrified of the plane.
2: Because that's a long flight. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't remember really anything about the flight except being scared, but still a little bit excited. And what happened was this family from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, actually. I grew up in the Midwest. They chose to adopt me through, it was one of the large adoption agencies that I think specifically worked with South Korean adoptees. And I just remember stepping outside and meeting this family for the first time. The dad was white. I later came to find out that he had actually fought in the Korean War. And he married a woman who was Japanese and they had kids of their own, but they were going to become empty nesters soonish. And they wanted their youngest son to have a sibling that was closer to his age. So they picked me and I don't know if they came to visit the orphanage. I'm assuming so, because that's really the policy that that's usually put in place. So I don't know if they had ever met me before.
2: Well, can I ask a question about that? So when you were at the orphanage, I know it's you were young, probably three to four when that when you were at the orphanage. But do you have memories of meeting strangers, meeting people, whether it was this couple that would wind up adopting you or just other people you met along the way?
1: I don't know. And I was actually, from what I'm told, I don't really have a lot of records or anything. But from what I'm told, I was with my birth mom till I was three and it was definitely not a good situation. I don't really know I don't know if she passed away or what happened, but I don't remember meeting anybody in the orphanage. I just remember all the little kids and the babies and, and the, the workers and <laughs> so but so
2: this couple that had chosen to adopt you, you think they might have met you. So what was your what were your first impressions of of this mixed race family that oh, you're coming to? Oh
1: gosh, into? I just remember thinking the dad was really scary looking. <laughs> why? Like why? So why? You yeah, different? I know yeah. this big white man. And I don't know that I've ever seen a white person at that time. And so he was pretty tall and still a little five-year-old girl. Of course, he's tall. And I remember though, because the, the mom was Japanese, I remember just feeling safer around her. And they had brought their youngest son- and he is half and half, of course. And so I remember looking at them and thinking, okay, okay, they look like people that you know, that makes sense to me. <laughs> but the dad was very scary for me. And personally, I mean, to couple with that, I mean, I had experienced some traumatic things involving men before I went to the orphanage, I later found out. So I have always had a fear of older men. And so I think that played a lot into why I was so scared of him at the time. But that reduced over time as as I got to integrate into their family a little bit. But it was pretty surreal. And they were, of course, very excited. And the first thing they gave me was candy. (laughs) <laughs> I remember that so vividly and I ate a lot of it. I had never had it before.
2: Do you remember what kind of candy it was?
1: It was, I just remember it was hard candy. I don't, I have no idea if that's even accurate, but I just know it <laughs> was just candy sweet, and it was candy. Yep. And I have a big sweet tooth to this day. So I, wow. I bet that was part of it. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they drove me to their home and I remember them taking me to my room, and I, I looked at it. and I, I just remember thinking, "This is where I'm sleeping. This is mine. and in in Korea, what I learned when I was older is that it's very common to sleep on the floor. I think that's a big part of Asian culture. But I slept on floor on mats and shared a lot of things with a lot of other people and didn't have things of my own. And so, Just the sheer magnitude of they had the room decked out in every little girl's dream. There was pink everywhere. There were toys everywhere, but like a bed. And I didn't know what that, I did not know what that was. And so they had to show me how to use a bed, how to use a toilet. I remember getting a bath that night. I had never had a bath in a bathtub. In the orphanage, I remember we would line up as little kids Naked, And they would put us in this big wooden crate and just kind of pour water over us. <laughs> so that was bath time in the orphanage. So getting a warm bath with toys and all that stuff. I just, I remember all of that. It was pretty amazing. And I think that's probably why I still remember it to this day. It just really stands out. And then was it just you and
0: their other son or were there other children in the house as well?
1: Right. They had grown children that one was in college, I think, and the other was beyond college. And so they met me, I think, a day or two after I arrived. They probably had to come home from wherever they were. So the first night, it was just their youngest son. I think I had
0: read in your bio that you were adopted into a family with 19 other kids. And I was just wondering.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. Like, where
0: were those kids? Where were they?
1: <laughs> well, uh, this is where it gets a little sad. With adoption, it's, it's a lot more complicated than people tend to realize. Obviously, people that adopt understand how complicated it is, but just... Hearing it from the outside, hearing other families' great experiences, you don't always hear the harsh side that can happen. But this family, they had a lot of trouble adjusting to me. And I had gone through so much trauma from zero to five that I was a very different child. I wasn't your normal five year old. I had seen things and gone through things that I shouldn't have. And I had been abandoned once already by a birth mother for whatever reason that was. And then I was stuck in an orphanage with a bunch of little kids that I didn't know. And it was just a constant, it was not a great experience there in the orphanage. And so kids that come from situations like that, especially when they're older, And I'll try to not get too (laughs) deep and heavy here, but it's hard for young kids of that age when they're adopted older like that to really attach to the adoptive parents because they have already built their own system of protecting themselves. And that was to not get attached to people that were supposed to take care of you because, you know, so long story short, I stayed with that family for two years and it, it just, it didn't go well. And so I remember they sat me down one day. I'm sorry. I've told this story so many times. I don't usually cry anymore. Take your time. But yeah, they told me that they couldn't have me in their house anymore. And I was as a bad child and that they were going to give me to another family so at that time i was about seven and yeah i mean that was rough when i was that age though because i i really hadn't attached to them which was part of the issues i i didn't cry i remember feeling sad and confused I remember thinking, like, you know, yeah, they're right. I'm a bad kid. And, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have the normal reaction that obviously any other child would have if their parents were telling them that they were going to give them up. So that is how <laughs> I went to a family that had already had, at that time, actually, they had 12 kids at the time, and I was going to be number 13. And it eventually grew to 19 adopted kids, which <laughs> was pretty crazy. And they also lived in Wisconsin. So I traveled, honestly, it was like an hour away. And I remember going into the car with the caseworker. And, you know, I don't know how, how social workers do that work, honestly. How do you take a, a seven year old little girl that had already been through so much and then literally transfer her <laughs> to yeah. a different home? Yeah. Yeah. And just she hugged me and said, it's going to be okay. And she hyped up this new family and she was an incredible person. I just, I don't know how people get into that work because I mean, that's so challenging. I, I can't imagine doing that every day. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think about anytime I have problems with what I'm doing for a living, I think when I have a bad day, not a lot changes. And the kind of the impact people like social workers, nurses, doctors have. I guess the question back then, as you move into your new family, and I don't know if this is the case, did some semblance of normalcy start to stick? Or the did the family? roller Yeah, or did the roller coaster kind of continue?
1: Well, let me paint you a picture. (laughs) (laughs) I arrive at this new home and this particular home, I remember pulling up to it because, I mean, it's obviously a big milestone in my life. And it was this brown home that sat on this hill, a small hill, but still a hill. And it was elevated among all the other homes next to it. So I just remember thinking, oh yeah, that home's big. (laughs) And in reality it wasn't a huge home it was a seven bedroom home but it was a very condensed seven bedroom home and I walk into it and all of a sudden there are all these little kids and older kids that are all sorts of colors shapes sizes and so there's two white parents who come to greet me with open arms and a myriad of very different looking kids <laughs> all around me, Black, Asian, and white. And it was it was pretty chaotic. So it took a little while. I'm at Hogwarts. Go What's going on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of a sudden, I had 12 other brothers and sisters. So yeah, it took a little while.
0: <laughs> Did you feel a sense of belonging? Or was it just one of those crazy, chaotic, but fun kind of moments?
1: It was definitely crazy, chaotic, but fun and trying to understand what I was doing there. And so in my head, I knew that this was my, my new life. These were my new parents. And I, I just knew I had to... It was then, right when I transitioned into this new home, it was then I formed. I remember forming a distinctive wall because I promised myself that I would not be given up again. So I had to do everything that I could to make sure this family kept me. So yeah, it was an adjustment.
2: To kind of lighten lighten it up with a question. I'm doing math in my head. 13 kids, seven bedroom house, two white parents. I'm guessing you didn't get your own room.
1: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh no. (laughs) Definitely not. Or your own bathroom. Definitely not your own bathroom either. (laughs) No, we had a we had two and a half baths, and one of the bathrooms was strictly for my parents in their bedroom, which makes sense. So we shared one other bedroom or bathroom with one tub (laughs) and shower. Oh my god. And then a a powder room. So we made it work. But yeah, no, I I definitely roomed with two, sometimes three other girls.
2: Where were you in the pack? Older, younger, middle?
1: Oh, people love this answer because they think it's so funny. I am the oldest of the youngest third. (laughs) Oh, yes. I'm both an oldest child and I'm a middle child. (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: funny. And then, so did you guys all go to the same school? Everyone that was within the same grade levels?
1: Oh, gosh, no. Actually, we were, every child in this home was at one point homeschooled. My parents were crazy. Uh, I don't know exactly how they did it, but I kind of know because I went through it. We did a lot of self-teaching. So a lot of us were homeschooled all at the same time which was kind of very interesting.
2: It's kind of an interesting question to ask, but back then, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you What did you think about your future?
1: Well, I grew up in a pretty small Midwestern town. And in the environment that we were in, you weren't around a lot of corporate executives that were female or even of different races. The women I grew up around, it was a lot of teachers or stay-at-home moms. And my dad is at my adopted dad. He was a pastor. And so we were all preacher's kids, <laughs> very stereotypical Christian family. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's that's just how. We well, I got,
2: I'm sorry. What is stereotypical preacher's kids? What does that mean?
1: We went to church multiple times a week and we were in all of the Extracurricular activities at church and everything was very centered around religion and conservative norms. So there was a lot of emphasis on religion and the Bible and everything like that growing up. And so, even to the point where a lot of my siblings, when they got a little older, they would choose the conservative Christian higher education institutions to go to school and things like that. So
2: what did you wind up wanting to do?
1: Yeah. So to answer your question and growing up in my family was pretty nuts and we certainly did not have a lot of money. We never wanted for anything, but I definitely know what it's like to, to not have the things that normal young people or teenagers want in life. And so, in order to really be to be anything that we aspired to be, I mean, some of it had to be self made. So, long story short, I, I did not want to be homeschooled, and I hated homeschooling. It was not the way that I learned very well, and I had a lot a lot of trouble with it. And so, I told my parents, I was like, "I, I want to go to school. I need. I really want to go to school. I wanted to meet other kids and." have people in my grade where I can make friends and their rule was, well, if you're going to go to school, you need to go to a private high school, this certain particular private high school, and you have to pay for the tuition. So I started, we were doing all sorts of odd jobs growing up. And I had three paper outs since the age of like nine or 10, I started that. And then when I got old enough, I started working at McDonald's. And I worked at McDonald's to pay for my private high school education. Oh my
0: goodness.
1: Yeah. Wow. And obviously, I was a pretty scrappy, really hard worker. And just my personality, it helped me do really well in the fast food industry. And my supervisor there wanted to have me train in for supervisor position in the middle of my high school career and so i just i actually remember my mom telling me that look there's nothing wrong with that you should aspire to do that that's a good path for you and i just remember thinking oh no it's not <laughs> not what i'm going to do for the rest of my life are you freaking kidding me and there's a few of my siblings where we worked at mcdonald's and did what we needed to do to earn money to get the things that we wanted and so I just remember thinking, because I had older siblings at the time that were getting married, they were either being stay-at-home moms or they were teachers. One of my sisters ended up working for the church for a while that I grew up in. And I just remember thinking to myself, because during high school, when I went to this private conservative Christian high school, which was not a great experience, we can talk about that later, but I was surrounded by kids that were really wealthy, really white and really wealthy. And their parents had cool jobs. And they were talking about going off to college to do X, Y, and Z thing. And here's Grace, (laughs) who is being told to aspire to a manager position at McDonald's. And I just, I knew that that's not the path that I wanted for my life. But I knew in order to get that path, I had to break out of that community that I was living in. I had no idea what I wanted to do, to be honest. I knew I was really good at art. (laughs) Big Asian stereotype that I happen to fit into is I am a talented artist (laughs) and I was very good at music too. And so I also went to a high school that didn't teach you about future careers. So I was like, all right, I'll I'll apply to school for art I'll be an art major, you know? (laughs) So, that's, that's kind of where my life took me in my college years, but I just knew it was going to be anything but a McDonald's supervisor.
2: <laughs> if we fast forward to who you are today, how are you different from that young woman who didn't want to be at McDonald's? You mentioned the path that you saw for yourself. From where you are today, how are you the same? How are you different from the young woman in Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, I think I'm pretty, pretty different from that teenager at that time. But I think the core piece of me that that stayed the same was really this inner resiliency and strength to be something to make my life matter somehow. And I was pretty shy and a little more quiet as a teenager. And in my college years, I really was allowed to blossom because I had left the environment that I felt had held me back for quite a while in terms of really exploring what I could be and what I could do. And I mean, in college, I was, I just, I had to figure it out. It's hard when your parents have Nineteen adopted kids. Like, <laughs> there's just no room for a lot of handholding. So, my early college years—and I say early because it actually took me nine years to finish college—but that really transformed me into a stronger person, the more bold person that I think people would describe me as today.
0: And what would you say? You had said that you wanted to make a difference and to make an impact. What would you say is your mission now?
1: My mission now, well, I'm a very proud member of the nonprofit professional (laughs) membership. And I actually switched from the corporate sector almost eight years ago. And I, I currently live in the DC area to do this work. And when I first joined the nonprofit sector. I was very doughy-eyed. I was extremely excited to make an impact and and make a difference for people that just needed the support. And what what sector of nonprofits are you currently working in? Currently, I work in the youth development space, but I have experience in several (laughs) different sectors, including serving those experiencing homelessness and also the mental health space and the cancer space. So, it's been a very interesting experience, but I would say that the more I've been here and trying to climb this nonprofit ladder, it's been frustrating cuz I don't see leadership that reflects who I am, people that look like me and and come from experiences and backgrounds like I do. I just don't see that and For the longest time, I was frustrated because I was, gosh, I would love to find a mentor, a leader I can look up to that looks like me or has the same background as I do, doesn't have these fancy degrees and took a very non-traditional path or grew up with less or grew up in with all of these different experiences that shaped them into the person that they are. And It was frustrating. I kept looking (laughs) and kept trying to network and meet people and work for organizations that where I was searching for that and I, I just I couldn't find it. And so now I really am passionate about, well, instead of looking for this mentor, this type of leader that I can almost like I was trying to put someone on a pedestal, I guess. I was like, this is silly. I am in this space right now. I represent a group of people that have a lot of a lot to say and they can make a lot of impact because people with backgrounds like mine have a very unique perspective on how we can shape nonprofit work and really impact the populations that we're serving. So now I'm really aspiring to be that person for future Grace fosters and other people of color who want to see people that look like them and come from backgrounds like them and that want to work in this space. I really want to inspire people to think about working in the social impact sector, in the nonprofit 501c3 sector, because we we need them. We need these voices. And I think that it's a lost opportunity for organizations that that haven't really mobilized on this yet and haven't really elevated people of color into the, the leadership positions that they should have. But I think that the future is bright in terms of this is now obviously a very clear direction that many, many organizations and, and companies are moving toward. And so I see it as an opportunity for me to really have impact in that area as well.
0: Yeah. You kind of you touched on this when you were talking about how There's nobody in the space or there was nobody that you felt that you could look up to. Do you ever find yourself doing things at work or just in life to fit in with everybody else?
1: All the time, constantly.
0: What are some of those things?
1: It's so interesting because we have been (laughs) having these conversations at work and people kind of, they'll listen to me say this and they'll kind of tilt their head and be like, Really? But for me as an Asian American, especially with my background, having grown up in a very white community in the Midwest, that is all I have tried to mimic my, I would say my entire life. How I look, I want it to look as white as possible. How I talk, I want it to sound as white as possible. Even when I was an undergrad, we had to take another foreign language. I chose French because I wanted to be as white as possible. There was actually an option to study Asian languages, and I wanted to learn French.
0: Interesting,
1: And just things like that, how I do my makeup, everything, and how I present myself as well. I just wanted to really reflect the white culture, or I should say I did. I've been what, evolving. What changed
0: that? What changed that for you?
1: Part of it has been really letting go of the past. So there's a lot of things in my past that I was so focused on and it was driving, I was allowing it to drive my narrative for so long that it was keeping me from discovering myself and keeping me from being who I really was. Because I was trying to be this white person that was accepted by white society. And once I let that go, gosh, it was probably about three years ago, I completely just cut some ties with people that were really adding to that narrative. Then I decided actually to pursue a degree at NYU. And the minute I stepped on campus as an executive MBA candidate, and in my classroom, there were 40% of the class were Asian-Americans or Southeast Asian. And I was of like, wow, well, I'd never seen that before. I went to school and to my undergrad was at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> it's not super diverse. I mean, no matter what people think, it, that area really is not super diverse. And in high school, all my classmates were white. And so stepping onto into a classroom where almost half the people look like me, it was amazing. And I knew NYU was super diverse and all these great things. But until you actually get to step into a world where that's your reality, it just hit me. And so that was an awesome experience. And what that has given me is even more of an openness to explore my Asianness and to be proud of it for the first time. My classmates are amazing, all of them. But what I noticed <laughs> when I first was in class was when you grow up in the Midwest... Ron and you can probably relate to this growing up in the South, but you don't you don't lump yourselves with Asian people. At least for me, I stayed far away from being clustered with Asian people because I didn't want to be lumped into that stereotype. Yeah. And I kind of did that my first few weeks of class, and I'm so ashamed of that now. But I didn't really want to try to get to know <laughs> my Asian classmates because I was so afraid of what my white classmates would think. And shame on me for that, but it was just such a force of habit from the life that I experienced up until now. Yeah, I mean, it's a different
2: dynamic, right? When you're one of a few Asian people, you don't want to fit the stereotype, right? And two of my closest friends in junior high and high school in Alabama were Indian and Indian Americans, and we sat on the bus together, and we and we spent the night and got into trouble together, but. (laughs) It almost amplified the stereotype. And so by the time I got to college, I didn't hang out with Indian people. I wanted to assimilate even more. But I so I guess because we don't have that much time left. Getting this MBA, you've had a range of experiences in the nonprofit space. You've now immersed yourself in kind of a more diverse professional experience in this MBA program. What's next? What's got you excited for the future?
1: Honestly, I think just the possibilities of figuring out what What I really want and who I really am through this lens of exploring all of myself, not just the white part that I wanted to be, but actually embracing my Korean heritage and infusing that into my future. And so it's exciting to think that I could really have impact in the nonprofit space using my culture, my diversity everything that makes me different in a really empowering way for other people. I'm really excited about that. And for my own personal future, I'm happily married and my husband and I we we will be thinking about a family soon. And now that I'm becoming more comfortable with understanding the Asian side of me, I'm really happy that Well, fingers crossed that I can bring kids into a family where we're embracing all of who we are and not just the white parts of who we are. So both on a personal and professional level, that's very exciting.
0: I love that. This is a very personal question, but just curious, have you guys thought about adoption as well?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. And it's so funny because it's not funny, I'm sorry, but it's very a stark reality that All my adopted siblings, none of them wanted to adopt. And in a way, I can understand that because it is tough. It's really a tough undertaking. But I think for me, being a Korean American and having the experience of not only being adopted myself, but also seeing 18 other (laughs) kids go through the adoption process with me, or the adoption experience with me. And we also fostered kids that we didn't keep in the home. So it was just very interesting overall, enlightening educational experience. But I do plan to adopt from South Korea because I just know that the experience that I can give another little Korean girl or a little Korean boy that is without a home, that is an orphanage or whatever it might be. I know that I can provide that child just a really positive adoption experience because I will completely understand what that little person is going through, all the stages. And I think that is such a shame to throw away. There's a lot of kids that still need to be adopted, but a lot of people ask me about adoption and my thoughts around it. And I will honestly say that... Adopting a child outside of your race, I mean, that's something you should really think deeply about and what kind of environment you're putting that child in because that child is not choosing that environment for themselves. They're not choosing that life. You are choosing it for them. So thinking very deeply, can I provide this child this safe, inclusive environment if they're of another race than me? Because will I truly understand what that child needs or what that child is going through? And I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it, but they really need to think about if they're ready for that kind of commitment. And so for me, adoption of a Korean child, for me, makes a lot of sense. And I wouldn't be looking to adopt a white child or a black child. I I do want to adopt an Asian child because I think that's a gift that I can give where it really will be a positive experience.
2: Is your husband also Asian?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> He's a so white so I, I just want to challenge, but, but no, because
2: I want to, I asked that specifically because I want to challenge that question of yours. So why, because if you guys were to adopt an Asian kid, his this kid's dad's going to be white And you know, both Sharon and I are in, are in mixed race relationships. And, while we haven't adopted, we have kids who some days look like me and some days look like my Chinese American wife and Sharon, your kids look black and you're the Chinese mother. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand the need. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. I don't know. I, sorry. I'm I'm trying to unpack my own feelings on this because adoption is something we talk about as well. And I guess there's this optionality not to make it a transactional thing, but there are a lot of Asian kids who need to be adopted. A lot of white kids who need to be adopted. A lot of black kids who have adoption. And, Again, I don't have the experiences that you do here, having been through them, right? So, yeah, I don't know what my question is. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) No, don't apologize. It's a fair question. And again, people ask me this all the time because they're really curious about it too. And I don't know that there's a right answer. And I'll repeat what I said in terms of, it's not that I'm saying don't do it. I'm saying think about if you're going to do it, do you have the tools that you need to provide the child a great home. Because in my adoption experience with my white parents, even though we had kids of several different ethnicities, white included, we had a Romanian, a Puerto Rican, and then South Koreans, and then African-Americans in our family. But we didn't talk about race. We didn't talk about cultures. They didn't really give us the tools to, to deal with that as, as we were growing up. It was really ignored. And so that's what I'm saying is what kind of tools and environment can you provide that child if they're a different race than you?
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Well, Grace, we've covered so much ground and you've shared (laughs) such just, you've been so open and generous with your stories. I think it's time for speed round. What do you think, Raman?
2: I don't know, Grace. Are you ready for
0: some speed round?
1: I think so. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs)
0: What's one thing about you that no one expects?
1: If you're a stranger meeting me for the first time, you're probably not expecting that, A, I'm an avid weightlifter, and B, I'm a huge amateur baker.
2: <laughs> those things <laughs> so really those, well those, mix. Yeah, I was going to say, those <laughs> two things, they go together so well.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Is there a book or movie that has characters that you relate to?
1: Not really. I mean, there's obviously a lot of interesting books about adoptees sharing their memoirs, which are kind of interesting. But because I haven't really found something that I relate to that well, I would say that one of the... It's not a movie, but it's a documentary on AOC. (laughs) I'm sure you were expecting something like that. But just her story is pretty amazing. She's one of the only politicians that I really feel like connection with because of her story and what she did. So yeah, that's the closest maybe.
0: I like her. She's a firecracker.
1: Yeah. She's amazing. What's your favorite mom dish? My adopted mother was not a super (laughs) (laughs) great. I would say my mother-in-law, we have, I love her. She and I are very close and she is full Czech. And so one of my favorite dishes that she makes is the, the full on traditional Czech holiday meal. So that's a staple for me.
2: What, what is that?
1: It's things like navjska, which is the type of dumpling stuffing, and then more dumplings, like very carb heavy, which I approve of, especially since I'm a baker. So
2: <laughs> Nice. Yeah. What's your least favorite food?
1: I really dislike coconut. Raw. Coconut. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, being Asian, people assume I like it. And I'm like, no, I, I really don't like it.
2: <laughs> I feel like only Thai and Indian people like coconut. The rest of y'all aren't, aren't really big on I the love, coconut, are you? <laughs> I love coconut. <laughs> no, but, it, but in the in the cuisine, coconut only it doesn't show up in Korean or Chinese food.
0: Yeah, I don't Even know. In desserts, much. maybe. I feel like maybe not. You're right. But when I think of coconut, I think of either curries. So you're absolutely right. Or I think macaroons. Sweet, sticky desserts.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, I don't bake macaroons. I do macarons, but not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast?
1: Oh, gosh. I don't want this to sound too cheesy. But honestly, I've been thinking about this for a long time, even before I knew about your show. It will never happen because it just can't. But I would love to sit. My birth mom down, the first parents that brought me to the United States, and my adoptive parents, I would love to have them all sit in a room and just be able to ask them questions.
2: What does being a modern minority mean to you, Grace?
1: Being a modern minority to me really means being free to be who you are and not feeling like you have to be what other people or the broader society is telling you you should be or what you should look like or what you should talk like or what career you should have. It's really about the freedom to accept yourself and then embrace what that means to the fullest.
0: That sounds great. Well, Grace, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We really enjoyed talking to you.
1: And yeah,
2: and hearing your story.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was so good to be with you. And I really appreciate the opportunity.
2: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or
2: got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Now, here's a preview of our next episode.
1: My parents were really into Indigenous rights from the beginning. And so hearing their stories about self-determination in 1975, I got really passionate and I feel Indigenous rights really is Indigenous sovereignty, self-determination, right? Really holding, maintaining cultural preservation. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's Indigenous all over the world and they hold their own culture. Here in New Mexico, we have 23 different tribes, 19 different Pueblos. Each Pueblo has their own unique culture, their own dialect. Every tribe's different, but we carry the same ideas. We care for Mother Earth. We care for the environment. We care for one another and we want to do right for one another, but we all have a different way of believing and thinking because of culture.
2: That's it for now. I've been Roman Segal.
0: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out
0: there. We'll talk to you soon.